Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by award-winning journalist, editor, and conversationalist, Shoma Chaudhary. Stay tuned. One of the great joys in meeting new people on this show is discovering the awesome talents that they exude and model for others. And speaking of exuding talent and modeling for others, thank you all so much for listening to the show and sharing it with your friends, for subscribing, downloading, and rating the podcast, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. Now, I genuinely value having meaningful and deep conversations with absolutely anyone. It's a true exercise in understanding our evolving communication potential and limits, our situational awareness with a lens on empathy, and our ability to progressively build trust over time. Now, recently I was given a chance to connect with and meet award-winning Indian journalist Shoma Chaudhary and I quickly discovered why she's a living masterclass in cultivating profound trust through conversation. Shoma is a skilled journalist, editor, curator, and commentator. She was the co-founder and managing editor of Tehelka, an acclaimed investigative and public interest news magazine, where she steered a feisty team while also reporting extensively herself on issues of justice, social equity, human rights, environment, media, law, and the economy. Her passion for sharing ideas and showcasing storytelling was evident, as along the way she also founded Algebra, the Arts and Ideas Club, as well as Think, a cutting-edge conference of ideas. Most recently, she's hosted Enquiry, an online conversation show with frontline minds from across the world. Fittingly, through the many challenges and opportunities of her career, she's anchored her work around a sense of purpose and ideals. And she's been a steward for curating insightful discussions with politicians, vanguard thinkers, business leaders, and artists. From Shashi Tharoor to Robert De Niro, she's engaged with the premium who's who's list of all who's who's lists. Moreover, the delicate trust that she's cultivated is uniquely trilateral for herself, her guests, and her audiences. Tina Brown, the former editor of The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Daily Beast, and Newsweek, once said that Shoma Chaudhary is a powerful instrument of challenge and persuasion in India's public life and the best convener of conversations in the world. When Shoma was gracious enough to join me for a chat, I was struck by her inclusive nature and the simple sincerity and dexterity of her speaking. It made for, well, a pretty easy introduction. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by, honestly, one of my conversational heroes. It's an absolute pleasure, Abhay. Thank you for inviting me. And I love your style of doing things like, I, you know, we were chatting earlier and I said it's like, eavesdropping on friends chatting intimately intelligently thank you for having me well like i said also that that means a lot coming from you i'm so curious do you remember when you actually got first very excited 
by listening to stories and sharing stories or even just the idea of, of journalism in general? Yeah, I actually do have a kind of catalytic moment, I think, when I began to feel a journalist, you know, and uh, partly that's to do with becoming, you know, we, we were part of the founding team that set up the Helka, which was a public interest investigative magazine. And it kind of had a very heroic life from the beginning, you know, because uh, we started with a sting investigation and that just plunged us, you know, it was into corruption and defense procurement. But that story just plunged us into the heart of Indian democracy, you know. Before that, because you're kind of English speaking, you know, somewhat privileged coming from a middle class or upper middle class strata of society, you live in a kind of a social bubble, you know. And I, I don't think it's, I mean, unless you really come in contact with something, it's hard to fully understand the workings of power and democracy. But this story, as I said, plunged us in, you know, and I think I, for the first time, began to understand how power works. Mm. We understood how important media is because we were seeing stories about ourselves, which was completely false, you know, which was without any basis in fact. And that's when I actually understood how powerful creating a narrative is and media is. And on the other hand, you know, the government was, had become hostile to us and we were shut down. So you know, the judiciary, the courts, government, media, all the pillars of democracy, one began to experience that firsthand. So for me, that was when I think when I first began to feel a journalist. But in terms of listening to stories, there were a couple of absolutely earth shattering encounters one had with people who, as I said, fell foul of democracy, you know, and one of them was a doctor who was arrested. He'd worked 30 years in Chhattisgarh very respected man, and he was declared a Maoist and a Nakshal, and he was put in jail. So I went to examine his story. And again, there I came face to face with what narrative power and falling foul of democracy can do, you know. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, with all those kind of pillars of government and those systems that were sort of crashing about around you, and even the very compelling and powerful story uh, of even you know listening to this to this doctor and and what that meant and and maybe the power of what it meant at, at that moment was there some sort of addictive property to that when when you first experience it was there some excitement that was generated for you saying that this is something that i i really don't want to leave you know it's interesting you use the word addictive because Yes, you know, right then one had such a sense of purpose and meaning and sudden frameworks of, you know, significance. One felt one's voice mattered, you know, you were being able to intervene on big public debates, maybe even change perspective, you know, because one was taking counter narrative positions on a lot of, you know, big themes in our country. Uh, you know, one was being able to put feet on ground to look at farm issues, you know, Dalits, minorities, like I said, people who fall foul of power, you know. Yeah. So I think it really sharpened one's sense of journalism as being, you know, all, all the classic descriptions of journalism as being yeah. a watchdog of power, the voice of the voiceless, you know, and at the same time, one was getting respect and recognition and goodwill, you know, so it was a very exhilarating time. But why I said that it's interesting you use the word addictive is that some years later, all of it actually came crashing down. Mm. 
Yeah. And I had a moment of great crisis, you know, and I remember at one point even seeking help because it was so disruptive. And like I said, all the frameworks of identity were suddenly lost. Yeah. And um, it was a friend actually who's, who's actually a psychoanalyst, but I wasn't seeking it professionally just as help to understand this change. And she used the word addictive, you know, which is why I said, yeah. it's interesting you use that. She said, you have to be able to let go and to constantly want that high as being the raison d'etre or the meaning of your life yeah. is almost akin to addiction, you know? And she said, it's like, as if you can't live without that high, why can't you come back to ground and have meaning without a constant heightened state of existence? So that was interesting. I was, it was interesting you used that word. <laughs> well, it, it almost is those weaves are, you know, almost inseparable to some degree, especially in, in the moments. And I'm curious whether or not there's there are different motivators to unearthing a story versus perhaps narrating or even listening to one. You know, a a particular discovery that you're making and the possibility of it being that expose or the possibility of it being so magnificent and or explosive even versus a story that doesn't necessarily have the same kind of power, but has its own beauty in just narrating it or, or listening to it? Are, are they slightly different styles or start slightly different motivators in the experience? No, you know, I was just talking to you about some of the kind of tentpole stories. But, yeah. you know, when I look back on my years in Tehelka, actually, it's the unglamorous, substantive public interest work that one did, uh, which... I think of as true legacy, you know, or, or where I, I locate my pride in my work is that, yes, we just did a consistent and, and it was wonderful because we had this whole platform of very idealistic journalists. And, you know, a lot of people look back at that time as Tehelka achieved something, which was just this space where young journalists could really do their work and to be part of that ecosystem. There was a moral framework within which one was doing one's work, you know. So right. I think, like I said, that un, fairly unglamorous but large body of public interest work, that, that was, so yeah, that was the, like you said, the more just, you know, consistent narration of things which in, incrementally add up to a footprint, you know, where you're casting a torchlight on things that others are ignoring. Yeah. But yeah, of course, I mean, the brand got particularly known for certain tentpole stories. Sure. But later, when it all blew up, the goodwill was for the body of work, not for the tentpoles. You and your work have, have gone through so many different incarnations. And I'm curious that in thinking about how they blossomed, uh, each one of these incarnations and each one of the particular things that you've been proud of, have these simply been rapid, additive, and linear touch points, each one sort of linked to each other? Or are they, all, are they all merely ideas that arise and blossom out of some dormancy, meaning that they've always been there, but they perhaps are, are waiting for the right moment to come out? I think they're overall linked with, you, you know, they're linked with a certain value system that one lives with. And, uh, you know, right from the time I've been a kid, in a, not in any articulated way, I think I have always privileged a sense of meaningful storytelling 
over even earning money you know yes. so no, at every juncture in my life i mean it it sounds a bit but i think there has been a purity of intent that has driven my work you know so it's not transactional and it's not uh i've just not ever been able to be professionally transactional you know and even when it has really hurt one financially or in terms of opportunity one has not been able to be transactional you know so like i said yeah. if there's a link between all my work it's a value system and i think that's something which i hold to be true for everyone's life in a different way but you know when we look into the mirror it's not so much your uh, public persona or xyz you know that those are clothes you can drop and wear and change yeah. but i think all of us live with a story of oneself you know when you look into the mirror you've told yourself that there's a story of who you are and like i said that can differ for everyone else but for me there's a certain story that i have to live with when i go to sleep and that you can't mess with and uh, so yeah i think like i said for me that definitely has been about um, i mean i feel a little awkward saying the words but it is transparency it is yeah. integrity you know it is about like i don't think i can ever run with the herd if yes. some part of my instinct or if i know or have knowledge that there is another more uncomfortable narrative it's more convenient to run with the herd i'm not able to do that you know and that's purely because of my intimate dialogue with myself it's got nothing to do with anything else no and i i am curious whether or not that same kind of principle that compass if you will that compass of principles that you have you know some ideas and some innovations they are certainly additive because of your experiences and others have perhaps been dormant for 20 30 years and they're just waiting for the right time to come out and i'm curious you know for you as as someone who is been seasoned in this line of work and and with some of the great successes and also some of the challenges that you've had i'm imagining that that timing also must play a, a huge role in, in some of the ways in which you want to take some of these ideas forward yeah you know i mean you're right there is a kind of dormancy because you know when circumstances happen in your life there are always multiple paths you can choose right but like i said you know there's a kind of driver to everyone's life but the driver of my life has been i think purposeful conversation or purposeful storytelling you know yeah. and so yeah like even now you know i've had a kind of roller coaster 10 years of extreme highs and then extreme lows and i've had to kind of reinvent myself like maybe four or five times in these 10 years but right now you know when i'm i've kind of come out of several storms and i have a chance to again re-script my life it's that same impulse driving it you know so yeah. i have an intellectual properties company and the, and because you know we we are living in a extremely polarized very noise driven very hate driven uh, public life in any country actually now largely yeah. because of the kind of algorithmic sort of impulses driving our life everything is polarized so like i said in this circumstance i can choose you know will i to to be a polarizer means instant popularity a lot of money perhaps large platforms you know if i become a black and white i'm with you yeah. on against you there're great opportunities in that you know yeah. but in that time just like i said because of the my own drivers i mean my core purpose and philosophy of my uh, company is now to try and create very calm informed 
dialogic spaces, you know, where people can, whether they're live platforms of conversation or digital platforms of conversation, you know, that old fiery self where I was, you know, the old Shoma would want to take on power. I'm right now just not wanting to do polarizing conversations. You know, I want to have space where two sides who hate each other can come and rediscover each other's humanity. You know, you can actually speak to each other with trust. You sure. can begin to acknowledge that, yeah, you have some, you know, 30% of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Here's why I disagree. You know, I almost feel like it's more courageous right now to try and find calm space and rediscover humanity than to be in very fierce positions of right and wrong. You know? I, I feel like those conversations would be about as refreshing as they get compared to the ones that we, we often will experience in that sort of algorithmic world. You, you've had conversations with perhaps the most diverse set of individuals, you know, as it gets. What's made you such a good listener? And, and is this something that you think requires heavy practice and introspection to become a good listener because you know again in this polarized world that's not a skill that often is magnified or perhaps even celebrated yeah you know like i said uh, Abhay, it's one you're very astute you know you're really picking at the heart of at least you know you you're picking on at least what are my drivers but and and if i sort of articulated it sounds a bit i don't know like vain i think you know but it's true i think the heart of my capacity to talk or the fact that people trust me and have really opened up or that like you said i've been able to access a big spectrum of people the heart of it is that i listen you know but again, Abhay, it's it's smart that you picked on that, but it's again not a very transact it's not a transactional thing. You know, it's very much part of my core personality, is genuine interest. And yes, when a lot of younger journalists ask that, you know, how do you do that interview? It's true, I prep a lot. I, you know, no matter now I'm I could do this in my sleep, but I'm never so gungo. I may just take 10 or 15 minutes, you know, to speed read, but I will always do the research. To yeah. find the levers of what drives someone else. So one is that, like that sincerity of actually doing the work, uh, the prep work uh, all the time. But secondly, I, like I always tell younger journalists that it's not that you are putting on a facade of listening. So, you know, you have to have genuine curiosity to know what drives someone else. And when you have that, the dynamic and the chemistry there then becomes very real, you know, and you sure. can ask the most difficult or the most intimate or the most provoking questions but because you're not doing it with uh, any artifice or with any intent of creating a headline but you're really trying to understand the wellsprings of someone else yeah they know they're being respected and there's someone genuinely want to understand what maybe disagree with them also but understand them i think the, the beauty comes from that you're listening to trust me i know what i'm doing after a quick break we'll come back to our conversation with award-winning journalist shoma Chaudhary. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abe Dandika. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Let's rejoin our conversation with journalist Shoma Chaudhary. In that same way, being human yourself have, and I, and I ask this out of pure curiosity, have you ever succumbed to simply being a fan when you're in, in some of these conversations? Um, I can share that there's an element of this even for me right now, and I'm not a journalist. <laughs> Thank you, Abed. No, bizarrely, you know, because again, I'm not sure fan is the, like, yes, sometimes I have a lot of consonance with the person I'm talking with. Sure. And that can show, you know, like, like that chemistry match or the story match, you know, where someone's motivators and mine completely match, then there'll be an element of like, you know, an element of just uh, exhilaration in the conversation, you know, that can happen. But I must say, no matter how distinguished or accomplished or, you know, like I said, where their public personas are superstars or, you know, very like the movers and shakers politically or economically. No, I think when I when I speak to people, then it's really like I said, I think it's that really just wanting to know them as people and the outside costumes of who we are are not people's drivers usually, you know. Sure. And, and I think, again, that stood me in good stead because, you know, whether, say, it's like a Rakesh Junjunwala who's a, you know, huge market investor. Yeah. Typically, when people meet him, like, they're so in awe of his success and his market acumen that then, you know, they won't always challenge him, you know. But if, yeah. when you're really trying to be curious about maybe disjunctions in what he's doing or his stated positions and then his life, but you're really just trying to explore that. So we've had some fiery conversations, but we've become friends, you know, where even when you disagree because your sincerity of purpose comes through, people opposed to you also touch wood, uh, yeah. you know. Um, I can take a little bit of insight to that, or I, sh- I can certainly be sensitive to that because, you know, in the doctor's office, we have to do the same thing and that we're agnostic to what the outer costume is um, of of a person, of a patient. And in the end, it's it's very... It's scientific. It's, in fact, based on a lot of academic rigor. And we're trying to make the same discovery process, irrespective of who that patient is and what their background is. And that, that's, a great, that's a great parallel. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that you know, and use it somewhere else, I'm sure. But like you said, you know, you are costume agnostic and you are looking at the physical innards of people. Right. And I think in my world and my profession, I'm costume agnostic and I'm looking at the emotional, psychological innards of people, you know, so it's... You know, sort of switch a small gear here. I, I read a piece that you wrote back in 2013. It was on free speech. And one of the things you wrote was that most crucially, governments ought to be able to maintain law and order rather than constantly fear its imminent breakdown. And, and I was struck by that because in thinking what many societies are going through right now, is it inevitable that power preservation supersedes the fruits of citizens in a free society? I think, you know, all our democracies are in crisis right now. And that's when the articulation of principles, you know, we have two versions of a democracy in in any society. One is the electoral democracy, where it's just, you know, the majoritarian voice must prevail. Uh, But we also have constitutional democracy, you know, which is the principles on which you agreed to come together as a as a country. And I think for journalists, yes, you can report on electoral democratic, what electorally people want. 
and you must represent that fairly. But as, as a duty, representing constitutional democracy is the heart of all journalism, you know. Yeah. And so in that context, I am a free speech uh, fundamentalist, you know, I, I think it's very, very important. The caveats are different. You know, most governments clamp down on free speech by saying, oh, there's going to be disruption, there's law and order issue, hurt sentiments. And I think that's just, that's equivalent of saying there's no free speech, you know. Right. Government's duty is to ensure that if I'm doing something which I believe to be my right and it upsets other people, you know, they can't come and burn down my cinema halls or burn my books or threaten right. my existence, even if I'm saying something unpleasant, you have to maintain law and order. That's your primary duty as a government. The caveats I put on free speech uh, today, Abhay, yeah. is that, you know, too often now people are mistaking the right, especially because social media has now enabled the mob. It's not enabled free speech. It's yeah. that now today, everyone, regardless of whether they have facts, whether there's any evidence to what they're saying, they feel free to say it. Yeah. And that's when I would put my line in the sand is that before this you know yes it it didn't allow there was a kind of elitism to it but when you want to speak in public you had to possess some facts and the buck had to stop with you you know because there was a accountability to speaking in public you can hold any gimcrack any conspiratorial sure. view in your private life you know but if you're going to articulate it in public you got to have some evidence, you know, right. and you could be hating on people. That's just your opinion. You don't like people. Right. That's fine. I still, you know, I, I, I would say there has to be space to even say that. Sure. Because if you stop that, the next time you feel deeply about something, whether it's homosexual, you know, right. gay, gay rights or it's black rights or Dalit rights, yeah. you know, people might hate on them and then we're, we're not. so, you know, I mean, it's a very yeah, it's a slippery slope. But, but, I feel today that people are mistaking sheer libel, you know, and complete lack of evidence, lack of facts, and you are saying scandalous things about people and claiming that to be free speech, even in the media. Yeah. And some of our most prominent journalists are doing that. And there, I want to curb. I don't think you have the right to like absolutely say libelous stuff and claim free speech on that and then say that there should be no defamation cases and there should be no court cases and no one should go, go to the courts against you. I think that's not fair. You know, that's not free speech. And, and so are the levers of power then in some ways just weighted against those who really don't subscribe to this sort of mob mentality or to facts being able to blossom and, and have a space to blossom simply because the way that both media and, you know, electoral politics work, are, are those forces just too great? Right now, they do feel too great, Abhay. And, you know, there's a, I, I think there's, I know every age feels theirs is the most toxic, you know. But <laughs> <I> think, right. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's good when you read history, you realize there are always these bemoaning voices that say, you know, oh my God, like, life can't suck more and our yeah. public life can't suck more, you know, and that goes back to Roman times and right. etc. Uh, and I'm sure in Ashoka's time, people were saying like, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Power couldn't suck more than having Ashoka there before he turned with this. <laughs> so, <laughs> that gives one certain perspective. Yeah. But um, no, I, I think it's unprecedented, the coming together of technology, 
certain mood of populist demagogic leaders um you know the sense of climate change there's a sense of many stresses coming together and at the heart of that is a technology that's suddenly given voice to 7 billion people yeah in i mean theory you know sure. so what you have right now is immense noise and governments are not able to negotiate through that with any of the purity of it in fact their intent right now is propaganda and rage you know yeah. and and see all governments have done that in the past but sure. today you have a technology that can really empower the mob if you can weaponize it yeah because you know earlier what is like a physical mob can be 1 lakh 2 yeah. lakh people you know today you can suddenly have a mob of 60 million people right. after you you know yeah. like a amir khan says something that people don't like and suddenly you have like a flash mob which yeah. just cannot equate to a physical mob you know i th- i think like i said it's fine if you even hate on people yeah. that's free speech but today we veered into you can openly incite violence you mm. can openly incite taking away the constitutional rights of others and i think those are very clear cut restrictions you know yeah we've recently had some horrific uh, stories in the media where the media has got after a young woman you know calling her incredibly dirty names and yeah. you know all sorts of allegations and my point is how is this journalism you know like right. how can you articulate something in public that you don't have evidence for you know and how does that constitute for free speech so i think it's very clear what the lines are i'm struck by one thing because it goes back to this idea of having a space for calm rational conversation among these sort of polar tribes but are are people losing slowly the ability to listen rationally and think critically and even deductively confirm their thoughts through facts and fact finding or or even change their mind simply because there's no capacity for curiosity and discovery and you're right this may be something that generations feel every single cycle of this but you know i i'm just so curious whether this is just seems more magnified in this era or this iteration of this where people just are not willing to to listen and discover and and perhaps be open to changing their minds you know again i i do think it is i do think it's unprecedented because we've never had such public technology you know and uh, i'm sure when the printing press came some people felt disenfranchised because yeah. those who held the printing presses or those who were you know and by and large it was the left intellectual liberal progressive world that had power over the, you know discourse and part of the uprising against progressive politics across the world is probably that there were many people who felt that their world views and their uh, resentments or their value systems were not being represented you know so i'm right. sure there was some of that but i think again what is completely new now is not that different people have different perspectives or value systems you know there's competing value systems or competing resentments that's true of all societies right. i think what's different now is that the reason people don't have a capacity to cross the aisle at all is that we are all imprisoned in completely hermetically sealed bubbles of information 
that completely there's no leakage of the other side right so people live in completely parallel universes yeah and so when you try to talk across the aisle it's like talking to aliens yeah and i make it a deliberate part on my side as a journalist to read all the publications that i don't like and it comes from again wanting to understand that motivation you know nobody thinks of themselves as evil nobody thinks of themselves as morally incorrect right so if you want to dialogue and argue and combat perspectives in the world you have to understand what is that universe they inhabiting and some of that could just be pure hatred of others and you you don't want to make space for that but you have to understand what is the facts that they are being fed sure. you know what is the reality they are living in yeah. what is the deemed reality they are living in which is or enhancing that perspective and that today is the big division you know like take any big story and you will find that someone has such a radically different perspective on it because they're getting radically different facts and yeah. we're getting radically different facts and that's where the conflict arises you know well with those competing facts and with those competing arguments and echo chambers and true polarity where no one has empathy for a universe that doesn't fit their their own particular mirror that they're looking in how do how do we cultivate trust in 2022 then with each other i mean someone who has the journalistic experience to really fact find and make the discovery is the building of trust is the erosion of trust such that they're they're equally challenging you know i've been thinking and actually speaking a lot about this uh, aban i think there is a way and it's a slow incremental way but i think it's very important in any conversation of conflict and that today is within your families between husbands and wives you know like everyone is politically asundered you know there's so yeah. much of chasms between people and i think at the heart of it again lies what we've been speaking about that when you meet someone you actively don't agree with i think it's very very important that yes you listen you know not from a doctrinaire position you're genuinely openly listening that when you begin to push back on them first of all it's important that you acknowledge what they have said if you summarize so say i don't agree with something you've said you know i'll say so abhay you know this 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 is what you feel this is what you think and i'm not saying that with scorn or sarcasm i'm genuinely re- representing what you have said right and one you feel correctly represented you feel correctly acknowledged i'm validated yeah yeah and and within that you say and you know i actually i think you're right about this you know this is a blind spot we have this is a blind spot the other side has you're right to feel some of this we need to acknowledge some of that and then here's where i feel there's another perspective possible you know yeah. but just i think when a, when conflicting sides feel correctly acknowledged correctly represented correctly uh, understood and from that basis the disagreement begins then people feel good there's a space for trust there's a space for trust yeah. i think what happens now is that instantly there's so much labeling that yeah. people feel there's no way this assholes ever going to understand what i feel you know like they just don't get it you yeah. know that's the position from which people and and then there's the labeling either you're anti-nationals you're this you're that you know you're or you're 
rednecks, your right. you know, the basket of deplorables, and yeah, you know, and the then there, there's no scope because you're not acknowledging each other's realities and humanities, and then beginning to speak. And it is tough business, you know. I mean, that is re- like I said today. I think it's more courageous to try and find this space to speak to people yeah. you don't agree with than to actively fight with them, you know. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with award-winning journalist Shoma Chaudhary. Stay tuned. I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with journalist Shoma Chaudhary. Tell, tell me, uh, speaking of courageous and in thinking of, of your own pathway, you've, you've paved such a terrific ground for and space for, for women um, in, who, who have been watching you and your career and, and what you do and, and perhaps some of the achievements that you've had for for some women who are entering this space into journalism or conversation or content creation what needs to be done further to empower them or to accelerate their achievement and maybe that speaks a little bit to some of the work that you're currently doing you know about accelerating a uh, space for others um, you know I, I i wanted to put a bracket to what i just said earlier that when i talk of this intent to create middle ground space for conversation perhaps i mean i often think about it that there's that's possibly also a function of where i'm at in my life what age or stage i'm at in my life and i think if all of us were I don't want to call myself, a, I'm not a pacifist. I have a very fierce set of values, you know, but I think there's a ladder of resistance always, away, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's important that some people are fierce defenders, you know, almost like doctrinaire, black and white defenders of a value system, because that creates the tension necessary in a democracy. You know, you yeah. need some very solidified opposing value systems because out of that tension, uh, in a democracy is where the center good center arises you right. know so i'm i don't think everybody needs to be the middle roaders sure. like i said i think there's a ladder of resistance and societal dialogue that goes on you know yeah. i think i as the middle rung today is very important but it's yeah. equally important that there are some fierce defenders of progressive values who absolutely don't want to speak to those who hate minorities yeah. or you know, they just don't want to accommodate them at all. I think both things are very important. Yeah. And that's similar for the women's movement, you know. Sure. Let's take the Me Too movement. I think that sheer fierceness and almost um, unaccommodative black and white rage with which women have fought back has been important, has been historically important, you know. Now, in that process, a lot of mistakes have happened. A lot of, I would say, some you know, some important value systems have fallen by the wayside. And again, as a woman, I take that counterposition, acknowledging that none of this would have happened if it wasn't a fierce wind. But within that fierce wind, you need another note where there are also women saying, okay, let's also include another value system, which is that I always use this phrase, 
that as women, as people who have had been, you know, victimized historically, we've understood how, how, um, you know, disenfranchising power can be that when you are getting your time in the sun, you don't just want to change the location of power. You want to change the nature of power. You know, I think for me, that's the heart of what I want to say to, to anyone listening now is that right. you don't want to change the location. It's not just that now the boot is in your foot. You know, yeah. if you're getting a chance in the sun, you want to change the nature of power. So yes, you want to be very fierce. You want to be very clear about what you will not accommodate. But the point I want to make is that should that be evidence-based? Should you always allow that someone can speak? Or will you now become the witch hunters like others were witch hunters earlier? Will you not allow for evidence, for dialogue, for process, for arriving at, uh, you know? And then here comes the most difficult thing to say in public life today, Abhay, is that if people have been wrong, if they have wronged, if they have really, you know, like fallen off the radar of what is acceptable, they must face consequences. They must have punishments. But are we going to take away the possibility of human redemption altogether? Mm -hmm. You know, so this cancel culture where you will not allow people to evolve, you will freeze freeze them in their moment of wrongdoing for all time to come. I'm just opposed to that with every hat I wear as a human being, journalist and a woman. I feel that is a true distortion of what any of us should want to aspire for. And I often say that, you know, by that, these standards, uh, Gandhi would never have become a Mahatma, you know, yeah. because back then when he was calling the blacks kafirs and all of that in South Africa, you know, the, he would have been freeze-framed into that and yeah. being called a jerk and never been allowed to evolve, you know. Right. He was a casteist, racist man. Yeah. And life allowed him to evolve to become a Mahatma, you know. Now, I'm not saying there should be no consequences. But should we not allow people the chance to evolve? And I think that's become a true, uh, I'm not sure that existed ever before, you know, at the scale at which it exists now. And I wonder if really the accelerator for this kind of achievement has to be not only the variation and the diversity of dialogue that's around you and, and any other woman for that matter. On top of that, the prospect for redemption, especially to be cognizant and for others to be cognizant of your own of your mistakes and missteps and allow you to correct them but in fact the opportunity to have great mentoring and to have great introspection and self-awareness to be able to to acknowledge all the things you just mentioned without there being a kind of hidden agenda of negativity or even being looked upon as, as weakness um, in that in that sort of space because I, I think that that seems like it doesn't build confidence it doesn't build self-trust if if you're constantly thinking that self-introspection or the ability to make mistakes or the lack of redemption if they're viewed upon as weaknesses then I, I would imagine that it just makes it harder for ever, anyone that that's not a weakness, that that in fact is vital to achievement. It's vital to your success. No, you're right. No, yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, that's totally like in public life now, people cannot ever, you know, the moment people articulate something new, people will go back to your history, unearth some, you know, foolish collegiate idea that you had and it's thrown back at you. And that's then shown as, hypocrisy yeah. now here's i mean I, 
we are asking for very nuanced positions in society, but it's possible. And previous ages have had that. You need great vigilance. You know, you don't want people to get away with things at all. So what you need is very compassionate, clear vigilance. You know, let me add one more word. Compassionate, clear, fierce vigilance. And in that, so yes, you're a vigilant of people who are doing wrongdoing. You call it out, but you're compassionate because you are going to create space for them to maybe introspect and change, but you're going to be vigilant that if they do it again, you're going to call it out again. And then if they become habitual offenders or habitual hypocrites, then yes, then you're going to push them off their right to have any public space. Or, you know, if it's criminal wrongdoing, then... You get what I mean? So I do. There, has yeah. be, there has to be that iterative process to it, but based on a clear value system, you know? And when I say that these are very nuanced things that we are asking from people, yes, but it's not uh, impossible demands because look back to the creation of any of our founding stories of ourselves as nations. You know, let's just take America and India since that's where we are located. Yeah. I mean, India at 1947 was a illiterate, colonized, impoverished, casteist, communalized country, you know, like it could not get crazier for yeah. our founding leaders. But look at the glorious document of principles on which they created the constitution. And that's held us together for like 70, 75 years, blundering around, but that value system is held, you know. Yeah. So I don't think it's uh, over idealistic to articulate uh, the principles on which a society must function because yeah. if that lifeline is there like when you're drowning at least you have to like have a lifeline but <sighs> if we stop articulating this then like we're all in a swamp and are, so, are women in particular do they have those lifelines that are visible do they have those mentoring pathways that are visible and and available or or is there truthfully a shortage of that for women who are like I said, entering this kind of space or, or aiming to ex uh, excel? I think, you know, again, one has to keep speaking of stratas of society. You know, it's, there's no sort of homogenic reality yeah. for anyone. But I think by and large, historically, we're possibly at the best place it's possible to be for some a certain strata of women, you know. Yeah. Let's just take ourselves, like, privileged, educated, etc. Even we used to face such walls of uh, patriarchy and resistance, you know, uh, earlier and just indignities, you know, let's not even go to the vile crimes or the vile walls because those are visible and easy to fight. Yeah. I think what's much harder is the psychological spaces within which women have had to function, you know, yeah. where there's immense indignity, immense narcissism of men. You know, this thing we were speaking where you erase and erode people, yeah. women have had to face that. And very public women have had to face that in their private life. So that psychological violence that women live with is, is very, very deep, you know? Sure. And I think it's, so like I said, I'm not even going to the overt violence because that's right. there. So yet historically now, I think we have, and because of this fierce wind with which women have fought back, yes, women are in a better place today. And that has to now percolate down. Yes, there's yeah. much more mentorship. There's much more listening for women's realities. There's much more sympathy, compassion, fierceness, and vigilance. All the adjectives I was using. Yeah. Yes, they have come into context for women. You know, those yeah. things are there. If you raise your voice, a society is going to be much more 
willing to hear and actually much more rally to you than ever before so all those things are very very it's it's very optimistic you know but does that mean there isn't a dark continent still lots of work to do there's yeah. lots of work to do yeah but yes it is a very hopeful time you know tell tell us uh, we we talked about this briefly earlier but i i i would love for our listeners to hear a few of the things that you've been working on that are exciting and that you're so optimistic about that in some ways are embodying many of the things that you talked about today yeah so this you know right now i'm like a huntress in the forest hunting for money you know to make my dreams come true <laughs> <laughs> and i guess there a lot of people will resonate with that stage of life but yeah for me it's it's unusual because i've i've put in almost 20 30 years of work and yet it's almost like starting from scratch because of the roller coaster that my life's gone through but yeah i'm very excited right now because i do have a company which is an intellectual properties company and its core vision is to create an ecosystem of platforms which will do exactly what we've been speaking about create spaces in society where people can dialogue it marries pleasure and purpose i think you know no society can be robust without a life of the mind you need social intellectual cultural capital and that's what i really want to create you know spaces where people can come together hear themselves think i use this set of phrases where it will spark your brain touch your heart and challenge your perspective break your silos you know that's my core vision and within that there are two or three really ideas that i'm very excited about one is to create a a platform which will be like a festival of women and it's a it's a celebration of women achievement you know and that could be stories of personal transformation but my god there's such a vibrant myriad fantastic universe of women who've just broken through and are doing you know so to bring that together would be really exciting yeah the other is uh, one which is going to explore the intersection of science tech and society which is again what we've been speaking about and a third one is a more eclectic sort of festival of ideas you know so which is has no agenda it's just to bring the most vibrant networking of human thought in one place is how i describe it you know? it sounds uh, not just fun but incredibly ambitious uh not only that the the fruits of which i think will be celebrated by by a lot of people you've spent so much of your career unearthing discoveries and staying intellectually curious at a very very high level so that others can reap the fruit of that but i'm i'm curious about what questions you're currently asking yourself and in taking that sort of introspective lens what you hope at least some of the short term answers might be well you you ask very very you know it's like i'm feeling like you've got a kind of periscope into my my <laughs> sort of in the world you know and i'll tell you why because for all that i've been speaking of i also live with a deep sense of unrest and discomfort because i think that there is at a very large scale a lot that's going truly wrong in our society certainly in india and again i i want to be nuanced on that you know so when i speak of say the government today i want to acknowledge their endeavor some of the good they're doing some of, you know a lot of governance like a lot of the frameworks that they speak of are are very exciting you know when in fact when 
Mr. Modi first came into power, the framework and narrative that he set up was fantastic. You know, it was governance for all, uh, you know, sure. ir irrespective of cultural identity or religious identity. You know, a lot of good things that he said, a lot of focus on clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. There are many things that at a rhetorical level, I would, and I still want to acknowledge, like, wow, that's good stuff, yes. you know. But at, at another level, there has been unleashed into our society um, deeply, you know, and this is programmed communal vi virus at the level of speech, at the level of discourse. You know, there's a kind of authoritarianism that's creeping into our lives. And what that's doing is atomizing all of us, you know, because a lot of the structures of democracy today are truly weak. You know, and like I said, I don't want to blame past governments have been very vile in their own ways, but because they've perhaps not had this conjunction of money, power, personality, endeavor, technology, you know, like so many things have come together right now and a very powerful personality who must have his moment in the sun because he's earned it. But then, like I said, in every society, you need uh, that great competing value system and, and a good opposition, you know, even those powerful would be better off for a good opposition. Right. And today we don't have that, you know, we really, really don't have that in India. We have a completely defunct opposition. Yeah. And so, and then defunct oppositional voices in the media, you know, because there's no structure right now for opposition to really express itself in any meaningful way. And that could be at a societal level, civil society, media, you know, politically. Sure. And so I do live with a lot of sense of unrest because I also feel that I'm not, you know, right now I may be being vigilant, compassionate and nuanced, but I'm not being fierce enough. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the structure within which to be fierce. All the pillars of democracy right now are, are very, uh, are struggling, you know. So there isn't a solidarity, there isn't common cause, there, there's no money backing oppositional voices. And uh, so, yeah, I'm doing my, my my bit, but I do live with a sense that I'm feeling my moment. Yeah. And uh, you do feel a bit compromised inside that there's some things where I should just be out there black and white, like fiercely saying this is not okay. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a straw in the wind. And I do try and see it through this program online show that I'm doing. But it's also a, sometimes a question of like, do you want to hang in there? And just be that one note, uh, you know, because you, it's, you can't be the song, you know, you, right. you don't have the strength to be the song. Yeah. So is it, is it more, uh, you know, important to just be that one note in the song and just be putting that out consistently? But I do live with a sense that I wish I could be a little more fierce for my own value system right now. So I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Well, I, I hope the ambition to be more fierce and the patience to ensure that it is executed and has some great outcomes is fruitful. And I know that all of us will be better off for it. Um, Shomat, thank you so much for, for joining us. What a treat of a conversation. And I really do hope we can do this again. Thank you so much for having me, Abay, and, and for your questions, very perceptive. Thank you. And everyone, please go to shomachodhari.com to learn more about her work. Of course, a shout out to Preet for the connection here, to Baby Krishna for being born last week, and to the algorithm bot that keeps sending me Michael Jordan highlight reels in my Instagram feed. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandika. Because every story told is a lesson learned, 
because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app, or wherever you get your podcast. My Ruckus Avenue family, this is D-Boy, straight from the UK, now in Toronto, 
and I want to talk about The Rise. It's a collection of South Asian hip hop. That name again, The Rise. You can find it everywhere. And it features some of the best South Asian talent out there right now. Artists you may know and artists that you need to know. So please go and support the album and support the project. Peace.